0: want to just tell you that it's been a pleasure the last few months uh, preparing and preaching a few, several times I'm very excited to have Pastor Jeff in the pulpit in just two weeks um, but I've learned a lot through this experience and, and God has blessed studying so thank you for that opportunity and I, I know that he's blessed it in my life I hope it's been some encouragement I would just also encourage you as we think about going to two services that I'm uh, always encouraged that as you prepare, Holy Spirit prompts, and then you, you're sitting here, and you're standing here, and you're preaching, and you see someone in the church, and it even causes you to say something that you've even written down in a particular way. And and that may be for the blessing and God's use, but when we're all together, we get the benefit of all of that. We get to see all of us together, and we get to be under the preaching together. So I'm very excited for Jeff, and I'm very excited for us to do that as... as um, Keith said, come early, uh, we'll, we'll determine if we're one happy family, if somebody's sitting in your chair or not, but uh, we'll, we'll fill this place, I pray. That being said, let's go to the Lord and, and offer our time together. Um, I do want to use a prayer that I was encouraged by this week as I listened to Lake Duncan, um, so please join me, pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is your word meant for us, for our souls. Ready us to receive it. Surprise us with truth unexpected. Correct us in areas where we stray. Encourage us by your word in places where we are burdened. Mature us by your word in places we need to grow up. Cause our hearts not only to understand your truth, but to embrace it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is your identity? What is your self-identity? The American Psychological Association, the APA, defines identity as an individual's sense of self. Defined, A, as, as a set of physical, psychological, and interpersonal characteristics that is not wholly shared by any other person, and B, by a range of affiliations, you know, ethnicity, background, social roles, In in such, a sense is derived from one's body sensations, one's body image, and the feeling that one's memories, one's goals, values, expectations, and beliefs belong to the self, they belong to me. So, understanding self-identity is a bit of a preoccupation with, with our society. It's something that we talk a lot about. In fact, in my world, if you don't know me that well, I work in higher education, I work at a university, That is an obsession and is championed and encouraged by universities across the country that students would come to know themselves, that they would know their identity, right? A lot of time is invested in this. You can get degrees in this, frankly. In fact, a recent John Brown University student newspaper was encouraging students to know and maintain their self-identity for four reasons they said. First, self-identity is important because it strengthens your character. It says that is when you know who you are, you have confidence in yourself and you're able to identify your strengths. Number 2, it makes you unique and distinguishes you from everyone else. Embrace who you are. Love yourself. 3 your self-identity keeps you comfortable. The sooner we embrace ourselves, the sooner we rid ourselves of insecurities, and we become, we become comfortable in our own skin. And finally, we become more aware of our immediate environment and our place in it, John Brown says. We are all here for a purpose, and recognizing our self-identity equips us with what we need to live out that purpose. So, again, I asked the question this morning, what's your identity? What defines you? How are you unique, I guess? How are you known? Or maybe how do you want to be known by others? How do you want to be remembered? These are questions that interrupt us often in our week, aren't they? I'm sure there is some value in these questions. I'm sure that knowing yourself and understanding yourself has some tangible benefits. I I see that even in college students at some level. But honestly, I fear and I expect that the focus and obsession on understanding self is, is really kind of misguided and misleading. It does make me consider maybe a better question this morning. It does make me consider how we might better understand identity. How we might better understand our uniqueness if we are unique, right? Are we unique? And understand our purpose in, as Christians this morning... We commonly talk about the idea that we find our identity in Christ. And this morning, even more interesting perhaps, we find a passage in Scripture that may answer an even greater question, a better question, but still germane to what we're talking about. What is the identity of God? What characterizes Him? How is He known? How is He unique? So what does scripture say then about his identity and then subsequently our identity? Where can it be found? Well, if you haven't already, please turn to Psalm 99. We can consider that together this morning as you do look that over. Please, just for context, know that we are now in book four of the Psalms. Remember when we started this adventure of the summer in Psalms, we started recognizing that there are five kind of categories Five sections of the book of Psalms, and now we've gone from book one to book two to book three to book four. Book four is really interesting in that it's very, there's a lot of homogeneous Psalms. They focus on one or two thoughts that are really rallying the people of Israel. There may be even some truth that the people of Israel are even in exile at this point, but there is a common theme that they should recognize that God is king, and that they should praise that God is their king, and then in doing that that they should sing and that they should worship and that they should exalt Him. And that is throughout all of these, if you go from book 90 to, I mean chapter 90 to 106, but especially 93 to 100, that He is the king over creation, the king over the nations, the king over sinful men, and the king throughout eternity, forever. We kind of see this, we're going to see this in this chapter. It starts with the Lord reigns. Just peruse one way or another. You're going to find that common theme, the Lord reigns. Well, like a lot of our songs that we like to listen to in in American society, this psalm has three sections, kind of three verses, and a refrain. So if that makes sense to you, it should, because that's how we like them. So maybe you'll like this psalm this morning. C.H. Spurgeon calls this the sanctus. Psalm, or, or another way of saying the holy, holy, holy psalm. Because we see three times the concept God is holy. And that is something that we see in eternity. And in Isaiah 6 and in Revelation 4. So let's consider this psalm together. Verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also among those who called on his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them in the pillar of cloud. He spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger to their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. Well, in the time we have this morning, we may not do this passage justice. There is a lot here that we could consider. But I hope that we can consider, as I mentioned early, the identity of God and its implications on us and our identity. Namely, we need to see and confess three things. Number one, God reigns in His holiness. And two, the Lord reveals His holiness to His people So God reigns in his holiness and he reveals his holiness to his people. Therefore, we must respond to his holiness. So let's look by beginning in in verse 1 as we consider God reigns in his holiness. Well, we see verse 1, the Lord reigns. And we have known from previous studies in Psalms a little bit about this. First of all, this is a picture of a king, isn't it? The Lord reigns, reigns, is a word we use that a, we use related to a ruler, that they have dominion, that they're over the people, that they're over a country, that they're over a land, that they rule it. And we see who's ruling here. This is again the word Yahweh. We see Lord in all caps. This is God's signature. This is God revealing who he is at the burning bush to Moses, right? This is God saying, I am. And it's not just that He, I am. He's eternal. He's magnificent. He's all-powerful. He's the creator God. But this is also how he signs his covenants. The covenants he made with Abraham. The covenants he made with Isaac. The covenants he made with Jacob that this is a covenant-keeping God who is eternal and is the ruler. In this text, he's rightly described as a king ruling in majesty. And we see that heaven and earth are his subjects. He sits on, the chair, on the, above the cherubim. That this is a throne. We are in the throne room of God. We're getting some glimpse of this majesty of this throne room, of this ruler, of all rulers and that heaven actually is his dominion. It's where he rules, but also all that he created. All of creation is under his rule and captive to his power. We see the all peoples here. This isn't just the people of Israel. There are Psalms that are calling out the people of Israel to worship God. This is all the peoples, everywhere, throughout all time. The peoples of the earth, of every country, should tremble at the glimpse of the King. They tremble at the glimpse of power. But how is his kingship? How is his majesty? How is this ruler described? Well, we see over and over and over. We see three times. He's described in one word, isn't he? Holy. 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 You know, kings are often described in one word that's somewhat common in the history of man, at least, right? You think about kings with one, with nicknames, right? You got Richard the Lionhearted, good nickname. I think Edward Longshanks, maybe not so good. Uh, I, I, I've read this week that it was either because of how he handled the Scots and invaded or because he was really tall and had long shins. Not sure which one it was. But that's a nickname that describes, that's how we remember. That's maybe the only thing we remember about Edward Longshanks, Bloody Mary, Ivan the Terrible, Alexander the Great. And often the nicknames are characteristics that are given to them. They may not make them themselves. They were used in their lifetime. So Alexander the Great, that was the champion of all of his invasions, all of his conquering. We have this great ruler. Let's rally. And sometimes it was how they were remembered after they died. And it was the summation. It was the one word of how they would be remembered. And, and maybe I'm sure some of them did not love the nicknames that they got or would have liked the nicknames they got. But we have one name here. We have one description here. What we have are the people, or at least of Israel, or the, at least a deserted remnant of Israel, that are ascribing to God as their king, as the ruler sitting on his throne with a chief and focused characteristic of him being holy. But we know that this description also matches the identity which God claims himself. So this isn't just some moniker given to him. We know in Leviticus 19 that he actually, as he gives the law to his people, he's giving them what reflects who he is he actually says, be holy, for I am holy. Follow me, because this is what it means, that that's how he describes himself. So what, what is holiness? We, we've heard some glimpses of it this morning as we heard Pastor Jeff read from Isaiah 6, but you could fill libraries. In fact, this week was somewhat overwhelming and preparing because there's so much we could just sit on Related to, we could fill libraries of good books on the topic of the holiness of God. But what does it mean? Well, there's a Hebrew word, right? And the word I'll try to say is kadosh, which is connotes the idea of being set apart. That it's separate, it's different, it's it's not the same, it's unique. God is set apart from His creation. He's different. It, it, it's more th- than that, too. We also know that this word in Hebrew means that he's morally pure. That it's not just a difference, it's a better, right? That he is completely pure, that there's there's God is without any sin, which we are full of sin. But in fact, he can't even tolerate sin in his presence. And even more than that, we understand that there's, there's literally no imperfection in him. There's no weakness. There's no confusion. There's, there's nothing that is not pure in God. Paul Tripp, when he's talking about these two definitions, he says, to be holy means to be entirely morally pure at all times, in every way, Right? But when you understand these two elements together, the set apart and and the morally pure, you're left with one conclusion, that the Lord of hosts is the sum and definition of what it means to be holy. He occupies a moral space that no one else has ever occupied before. And as such, we have no experience or frame of reference to understand what he's like. There's nothing like it. R.C. Sproul goes back to this definition again, and he, and he takes a more literal definition that comes from the Hebrew. And he says that this is actually a connotation of being to cut. That there is a cut between everything else and God. There is a complete cut. So that distinction, right? But it's not even just that, that it's, it's a cut but that it's kind of as if there is a difference in distinction between the garment of a king, which you see in Isaiah 6, and what I'm wearing this morning. That there's a difference in cut in the value and the quality and the goodness and the purity of what that king is and what he robes himself in than what you or I have in any way. That it's a cut above. That, and as Sproul says, he is an infinite cut above everything else in every way throughout all of time. So, are you getting some understanding? It's, 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 in some ways, we've heard holy, holy, holy before. It's an easy concept, but I hope you're also struggling with it this morning, because I struggled with it, and it is a struggle, because this is the truth of God, because it's the essence of God. It is who God is. In fact, as you see this, we see that the holiness is the very character of God. Carson, D.A. Carson, calls it the sheer godness of God. That's both easy to understand and very difficult. The sheer godness of God. He goes on to say, and this this is long, but this was so encouraging to me this week. Listen with me. He says, What does it mean to confess that the king here is holy? Some people work through etymology. That's like the bits and pieces that go into a word that we understand what the word means. They argue that God is separate, that he is different than us. But when the angels in Isaiah 6 or, or when you flip to Revelation 4, when they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, Are they merely saying separate, separate, separate is the Lord God Almighty? It loses a bit, doesn't it? Nor would it be right to render simply moral, moral, moral. Although we are going to see that God is just, even in this passage. So Carson says, as far as I can see, the whole notion of holiness, about which we do sing a great deal, right? Even in songs this morning. The whole notion of holiness, the word holy, has concentric circles of meaning, and you have to understand the context when you're looking at them. And at its heart, the center circle, when it applies to God, is almost an adjective for God. It's almost a way of saying God alone is God. There is no other. How do you describe a God who's transcendent? Whose purity is whiter than driven snow? Whose love far outstrips the love of a mother? Who is more nourishing than the best foods you could ever taste? Who is more entrancing than a million twinkling stars? Think about the pictures of the telescope that we recently saw and how deep the galaxies are. And you could still see the difference between galaxies and stars and their twinkling. Millions and millions and millions and millions of miles away. But yet what we have here is a God that is more entrancing than that. Who's more beautiful than a spectacular sunset. Who's just more. He's more. He's good. He's just better. He's so unabashedly good. That there's nothing that's better than he is. He is the best. How do you describe a God with those terms? It just seems small, doesn't it? This is why Christian theologians who've tried to study the use of the word holy with respect to God see that holiness in some way is the integrating characteristic of God. I love A.W. Tozer. Tozer, in Knowledge of the Holy, which I highly recommend if you want to think about the characteristic of God, dives into the holiness of God as a characteristic. And he says that because he is holy, his attributes are holy. So because God is holy, all of that which describes God is holy. So if God is love, it's a holy love. If God is powerful, it's holy power. If God is truth, it's holy truth. If he's all-knowing, if he's just, that we can't compartmentalize these things. You see, I'm a dad. I'm not a young dad, but I have young children, I guess. And I struggle because I want to show them grace and love. But I also want to be just to all three of them. And I want them to know truth. And so there's times when I'm sitting there in the moment and I'm going, do I want to be gracious here and kind? Or do I want to be just? God doesn't do any of that. He's all of it. At all times. In every way, he does not struggle with the balance because those things are him and he is distinct and different in those things and he's holy and complete in every aspect of that, in every way, for all of time. Holy is he. And, and, it, and as we see, if you look down in just a couple verses here, if you look in verse 4 and 5, we see that it characterizes him, right? It's his character, it's identity. But in that, then there's integrity in how he acts, that he isn't, it isn't just character, it's how he acts, it's his activity, it's what he does. That what he does is holy in every way. Look at verse 4 and 5. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Therefore, exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Carson says this. He says, no sooner has the psalmist called for a celebration of God's transcendent being, meaning his character and and the aboveness of him, that he focuses on his acts, his justice, his integrity, and that because we see this from character to act, that it addresses the abuse of authority. You see, we find people today that often are skeptical of authority, don't we? And, and frankly, it's because they've been burned by authority that does not match in action. But supposing you deal with a God who never abuses his authority who never is perverse, who never is corrupt, who never makes a mistake, who can't be bought, supposing he is holy, not only in who he is, but what he does. Wow. That really helped me this week in understanding a little bit of what I think the psalmist is meaning here. Not only does God have power to reign over his creation. And over heaven. But he uses that authority for right. He uses it for good. He does justice. He is justice. He was good and right, out of how he ruled over Jacob, as we see here. How he led Jacob's descendants into Egypt. How he led them out of Egypt. How he defeated and, and, and threw the plagues showed Pharaoh who was God and how he led them to Mount Sinai, how he gave them the law, how he led them in the wonders, how in their sin that they got what they deserved in wandering, right? In their sin and making a golden calf, they got what they deserved. We see God being just and in his goodness and being slow to anger, slow to wrath, but we also see that in each space he gave what was right, and what was good. And that's what they're assenting to, that his acts are holy. So, by way of encouragement and question this morning, what's the effect of knowing a God who is holy and acts holy? What what does that do for us? What should that do for us? Well, I think go back up. All creation should tremble. It trembles. Have you trembled this morning? Have you stopped to consider this God in some way? A real God, the only God. The God who made all things, and because of that, all things answer and are accountable to Him. A God beyond our understanding in purity, in justice, in power, in goodness. A God who not only is holy, but acts holy, Therefore, that is both encouraging in his consistency and alarming in our accountability to him. Have you entered this place this morning where you thought about God rightly? Well, if you're struggling to, stop, consider him in his holiness and tremble. The meaning of the word tremble here is both have fear of Right? He is not safe, as you think about the illusions in C.S. Lewis. But he's good. He is somebody we should tremble before. But the, the definition isn't just fear, it's to stand in awe of. And if you're a Christian this morning, you can enjoy and know and worship this great God. And we can stand in awe and be captivated and directed in worship. And we can want to know him and we want to enjoy him. We want to be at the footstool. We want to be at the, the mountain because we have access through Christ. Well, if you don't know Christ this morning and you're getting some glimpse of this otherness, this cut, this godness of God, yeah, it's unsafe. It's unsafe. And it's eternity, it's real. And you have to deal with this, God. But please be encouraged as we consider where the psalmist goes. I am encouraged, I want you to be encouraged. Follow along with me. We see that God not only reigns in his holiness, but God reveals his holiness to his people. God reveals his holiness to his people. Read in verse six with me. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. O oh Lord, our God, you answered them. You were forgiving, a forgiving God to them, but an avenger to their wrongdoings. I want us, to, even in struggling through this, to notice three things about the revelation of God, that God, this holy God, this separate God, would would make himself known to us. Notice that his servants, first of all, his servants were given glimpses of his glory. A few things in the language here. Obviously, we recognize these three names, right? We recognize Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. Even if you're not that familiar with scripture, maybe you're still a little bit familiar with, with Bible stories. These are... Pretty quick in Sunday school or pretty quick to learn about Moses and Aaron and Samuel, right? But know that there are very distinct encounters with the holiness of God that each of these men experienced. Moses in Exodus 33 and 34, he's up on, mount, up on the mount and he, the, the presence, the glory of God passes by while he is hidden in a rock And he cannot look at it because it would kill him. But he is so affected and changed that he is visibly seen differently because he experienced that glimpse of the otherness of God. Aaron, obviously, in completing the first sacrifice, he he led the nation of Israel in the first sacrifice for their sin. And in doing that, he sacrificed and put on the altar their sacrifice with blood of of an animal. And in that, God responded. And in fire, it says fire from his presence came and consumed it. And Aaron standing right there. Samuel was spoken to God in the night. He was spoken about the judgment of Eli. And he also saw the holiness of God when the Ark of the Covenant was returned. So much so that when someone touched it, they died immediately here's the point this holy god that we've just struggled to think about this transcendent god whose presence requires the angels in isaiah 6 to hide their faces amazing by that, just aside the angels were made that way that's how god made them because he knew their purpose and their presence was to be in the In his holiness, and they were made to hide their faces because they couldn't even stand that purity in heaven. That this God purposely and intentionally chose to allow his character to be renowned and revealed to his people. That's amazing. The juxtaposition of that's remarkable that a holy God chose to want us to want relationship and communion with us, even though we're, in, we're dependent on him in every way. We're accountable to him in every way. We're unholy in every way. He revealed himself. Well, two other points in that. He didn't get, just give glimpses. In, in these men, he also set them apart for purpose, for use for relationship with him think about that word we go back to that word again right set apart well what's what's the larger concentric circle then that that carson's talking about if if the essence is god himself and his godness he also sets things apart for his use and they were set apart for his glory that it could be revealed God's working in and through these servants was done in such a way that the revelation and glory of God was seen and understood as it was only from God, that that, that all of Israel could see that God was speaking, that God was using them, that it wasn't just the the quality of these men, but that it was God. Matthew Henry points this out in how they were set apart in two ways. He says they were set apart to have an intimate communion with God, Right? We see that here. God spoke to them, and they responded. God spoke to them, and they obeyed. They led the people in obedience. They took seriously this set-apart holy God because they were made to hear him. They were made to be set apart. But they also cried out to God on behalf of the people, and God heard You know, I hear this, and even as I saw this this week, I kept, as I would read this over, I'm like, man, part of me just wants to read this and think, man, I want to be like Moses. I want to be like Aaron. I want to be like Samuel, right? We read this, and we want to be in our American sense. Well, what's the leadership understanding? How can we be good leaders here? And there's truth to that. God set them apart in their leadership and used them for the benefit of the people. That is not the point The point here is the praise of God. God set these men apart to reveal himself and to show his character as people. It's amazing that a holy God would listen and take loving and patient interest while maintaining his holiness. Amazing. Henry also points out their communion, but he points out that then, he calls it good offices, that's old languages, for, for what he used them for. And we see what, it, what was accomplished. Well, each of these men interceded to God on behalf of the people of Israel for their sin. There's, there's actual passages in, each, in the Old Testament where each of these men actually cry out and pray for the forgiveness of the people of Israel, that God would be patient, that God would be forgiving. And guess what? God was, each and every time, while addressing their wrongdoing, he was patient and faithful and covenant-keeping to his people. They obeyed, they prayed, they led, and they interceded. I was amazed in thinking through this. It, it kind of hit me surprisingly as I struggled through how to prepare. And honestly, you come into a, a passage like this, which is so different than us. And as you're speaking, you're thinking, how can I make this relatable? And I was struggling. And I was sitting yesterday just composing and, and working on, on what I was going to write. And I kept being interrupted. And in that interruption, it did come to me in some small way. My children kept interrupting me. In fact, I remember Winna, she's two, she was at the top of the stairs, and she kept crying, Daddy, Daddy, I need your help. Well, I need your help bringing something down the stairs. She needed help with a pink monkey, uh, a colt's football helmet, a book about insects, and a purse. All of that needed to come down at once. So, of course, I grabbed them, like, sure, babe, let's do She called out, and I answered A couple hours later, I'm struggling, I'm studying And I start to hear my older two children Who have been told to do something by their mom I can't remember if it was wash your hands for dinner or what They were not listening It was becoming evident by the understandable frustration in my wife's tone There was a problem here of obedience And at that moment, I recognized this is probably where I should act And so I got up and intervened and and corrected them. And that's what a father does, right? Or should I do it very imperfectly? But we have a fatherly tone of God here. In fact, it's better, it's bigger, it's purer in this passage. We have a righteous and holy king who's also the shepherd and father of his people, responding in love and grace But in justice to his people, he hears them and gives them what's right. He's holy in his relationship to them. He's forgiving to God, to these sinful servants, and to the people for which they're praying. But he's still just in avenging wrongdoing. He does not look the other way. There's no carpet that wrongdoing is swept under. It is addressed by a holy God. Finally, the third thing I noticed as we looked at this idea of the revelation of God to his people and his holiness is, is this word among. It stood out to me as I listened to Duncan, to Carson, to others, that they all stopped on it. Something that I passed over, right? what idea of among, that Moses and Aaron were among the priests, and that Samuel was among those who cried out to God. That This word among gives the hope, but also the need for more intercessors, for more leaders. That it wasn't just those three, there were more. And that as the people of Israel are, are singing this and, and praising God, that they're, they're singing with a hope that there's going to be more that will intercede. There's going to be more that will hear God and respond and, and, and cry out on their behalf for the forgiveness of sins. That's encouraging. That's encouraging that the revelation of who God is would be continued in the life of God's people. But at the same time, you also recognize the need. It isn't just the hope. The people of Israel are in a place here, whether they be in exile or not, where they need more intercessors, where they need a greater revelation of the holiness of God. It was necessary because guess what? Moses died. Guess what? Aaron died. Samuel died. Died. They were sinful. They were not the good mediators. God used them. God set them apart. But more was needed. God was gracious and condescending to reveal himself in any way to these sinful people. But as they're praising God for this revelation, is this a cycle that's going to continue? Is this something that just is going to continue that there's some revelation and then then God is both faithful, but avenging. And, and then there's the need for another intercessor. What, how is this corrected? Was there hope for a greater priest to plead the, to the great and holy king on their behalf? Well, let's consider, as I, I think Carson rightly says, look at verse nine, look how this ends. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. Note the personal nature of this verse. This this third holy is distinct and different than holy is he. This is for the Lord our God is holy. Carson points out that the hope of the psalmist is actually in God himself. That the hope that they might know his holiness and that they might enjoy his presence and that they might be forgiven Is in God that ultimately God Himself would be the one to provide the better High Priest and to deliver on the promise of the King, and God did, didn't He? God sent His Son in the in the person of Jesus Christ as He promised, and it is amazing when you think about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. If you think about the ceremonial law where we learn about the holiness of God revealed, be holy as I am holy, that that ceremonial law in Exodus and in Leviticus is saying. If you have been set apart and you have sacrificed and you are clean and you touch something or do something that is unclean, guess what you are? You're unclean. But in Christ, in his ministry, when he's performing miracles and he talks to lepers and they touch him, or there's the woman who just reaches out and touches his garment, is Jesus now unclean? No, what happens? they're made clean because Jesus is holy. He's God. He is the hope that they have. They were healed internally and even in their ailments. Ultimately, this unchanging holy God from whom we tremble before provided the only way we could be forgiven of God's wrath and wrongdoing for sin. The king also became the sacrifice by dying a death of a guilty man on our behalf where he was punished for our sins once for all. But we know that sacrifice was good and lasting. So much so that the veil when he died, the veil in the temple of holiness, that veil that kept us from seeing in some image this glory and holiness of God is ripped ripped by God himself that we would have access to this holiness, right? That we have access to it, that the sacrifice of God completed that for us, that this cycle doesn't continue. And we know that not only that, but in three days he rose, he had defeated death, he had defeated the guilt of sin. And now all power and all authority is his. And what's he do with that power and authority? All of this godness, this holiness, what's he do with it? He uses it to intercede for us. He he has a predisposition for our good. Well, do you believe that this morning? Are you hoping in the work of Christ today? Give confidence and desire to draw close to God at His holy mountain. Well, that's where we want to conclude our time today. It's where the psalmist concludes this great psalm. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I, I, I just want to encourage you, whether you do or do not know Christ, point three, where we end is our response. If God is holy in his character and God has revealed his holiness, we must respond to his holiness. We have to respond to his holiness. And if you are a Christian this morning, I encourage you to do two things. Number one, tremble. Tremble. Stop and consider who God is. Who made you, and whose by standards you are held accountable. I said in the introduction, we, we, we live in a world that is concerned about ourselves, our identity, how we make construct. Or meaning of the world we see, the truth we provide to this world. and this obsession with it. And in, in essence, it's our identity and our ability to reign over our own lives. We choose to purposely ignore what the rest of creation groans about and silently shouting, "The Lord reigns, God is holy." This God is real and we'll stand before him on a day unknown in the future and and we will see his glory and we will see at some level an understanding of his holiness and if you're not a Christian this morning that's a terrifying thought because God cannot tolerate sin and he will avenge wrongdoing and he is both fully loving and fully just in how he does that. But with that truth, I just want to encourage you also. Verse nine again. To seek his presence. This is how the psalmist ends this psalm. It's not good enough to praise God for being a holy God. It is not enough to recognize that. He must be your God. Our hope must be in him. Your desire must be for him. (laughs) We can't do this on our own, friends. I, you, we, want to naturally hide from his presence. There is a sense even in every, if, if, if anything I accurately describe God in, it creates a space that is uncomfortable for us naturally. Lig Duncan says this as well. He says, see, it's not enough to say that God is holy. You have to say My God is holy. It's not enough to say that God forgives sins. The true believer says, Oh Lord, you have forgiven my sins. It's not enough to say that Christ died for sinners. You must say, Lord, I am a sinner, and Christ died for me. Notice the personal embrace of this truth about God, which is an essential response to the gospel. We do not simply generically affirm aspects about God's person, his character, or his work. We have to personally embrace those things. Who God is and does, as for us, because He is our God, this is the essence of a believing response to God's overtures in the gospel. It's, Lord, I'm a sinner, and you've come for me, and you've called me, and you've died for me, and I embrace you as my Savior. Find your identity in Christ this morning. As you trust Him, as you have access to the identity of God Himself, which provides a greater and more lasting joy and peace and abundant life. And hope for a greater life in heaven, where we'll be with Him. And that's better than anything you may understand about yourself. And in fact, it is only standing before the One who made you who stands in holiness and reigns. That you can accurately have any understanding of yourself. That you can know your identity. I encourage you to know the identity of God. If you are a Christian this morning, I want to encourage you with the same truths. Tremble. Let us consider this God who we know. Let's think rightly about him. Who chose to know us. And provides the means in Christ that we can enter his holy presence with confidence this morning. But let's not come casually into this place or without reflection of how great, how separate, how cut above, how pure, how godlike this God is. How righteous, how beautiful he is. Spend time before you come to this place. Spend time when you come into this place thinking and getting your heart to a place of being in awe of God that you can praise Him and that in praising Him and exalting Him and crying out to Him, that you're reminded of your forgiveness in him and that he's your God and then that will spill into how you live and love and work in Bible studies in this community of Boynton Beach and what we're doing for our children, what we're doing with Awana, what we're doing as a church, even how we're embracing a new pastor. It starts by us getting an accurate sense of how God like this God is in his glory and his holiness. It's a struggle that we should do over and over again because it is so worth it. It provides us peace. It provides us rightness. It gives us an understanding of his identity and it gives us understanding of our identity. Finally, as I've said, tremble but seek his presence. We should want in every way of our life to reside at his footstool and his holy mountain as uncomfortable as that may make us. We should be quick to praise his name and exalt him to others. We should want to pray to him and we should take seriously in every way this week to obey him for he is holy. We should want to see him in his glory. Even just glimpses, just glimpses of this glory that I've just horribly struggled to accurately convey to you. Wow, man, we need to want those glimpses. And we should live and wait for the return of our king who reigns. Christ who will take us into his full presence for eternity. We get to worship that king today. So let's find our place and our identity in God who is our right king and let us find it in Christ who sits with all authority and power and intercedes for us right now. I hope that each of us, as we do that, we, we would be filled with joy and have full hearts because we're His. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain for the Lord our God is holy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We thank You that You are holy, that You are not like us in any way and in every way that you are eternal, that you are good, that you are powerful, that you are loving, that you are just, that you are righteous, and you are complete in all those things, God. And we are not. We are sinful. We are corrupt. We are weak. We're mortal. God, we give you thanks and praise for our king and our intercessor and our priest and our sacrifice in Jesus Christ that he came and he was perfect son of God who made things clean in his presence but yet took on our sin and died for us that we can know you and we can enjoy you and we can praise you with personal knowledge and presence this morning may we do that as we sing now May we do that as we live this week. In Jesus' name.